Why don't you turn to Genesis 6 this morning as we continue our study through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. These have been interesting chapters uh, for sure. And one of the reasons, church family, that, that it's been my practice to preach through books of the Bible is that by design, it brings us to passages and to topics that honestly I wouldn't choose on my own. But God has given us an entire copy of his word and he intends for us to benefit from all of it. And so I hope that we will appreciate the diversity of scripture and we'll recognize that those passages that maybe aren't exactly what we'd expect are there just as much for our benefit as your favorite verse in the Proverbs or in the New Testament and that we will benefit nonetheless today. I think one of the questions a lot of people have if they were to ask God a question, and it's a good one, is why does God allow people to get away with evil? That's a fair question. God, in his word, presents himself as holy, as just. And so a lot of people ask, okay, God, if you're holy and just and righteous and you say you punish evil, why is it that I know someone or a situation that it seems like you let them get away with it? But what a lot of people don't realize is that though sometimes it may seem like God allows people to continue with their evil. God is just being patient and waiting for a day in which he will always judge evil. What people also don't realize is that God's view of evil sometimes is a little bit different than ours. Because here's the reality. We all want God to be quick to punish the evil of others, which naturally we think is worse, but we often get a little bit upset when we start hearing how God wants to punish our own evil. In our passage this morning, I think the best way I could describe it, and this isn't a perfect term to apply to God, is that God reaches a breaking point. What we see throughout the scriptures is that God always sees what's going on and he often punishes it immediately, but sometimes he waits purely out of his kindness and grace. But though God waits and doesn't punish evil in a short time frame, he is allowing people to continue on and the day comes when he decides to pour out his punishment on evil, specifically what we'll see in our passage this morning, worldwide evil, and when he does, nobody gets away with evil. That's the backdrop of our passage this morning. And our text is going to answer several questions for us. When does God reach a breaking point? No man knows the day or the hour. They don't know when God does, but maybe we could see in our passage this morning when God judged worldwide evil, it might give us an idea of what God is looking for when he will judge it again. What is God's breaking point? And when God reaches a breaking point, how does he respond? 
What does he do to fully punish the evil and the corruption that is going on in the world? And then I think the third question our text answers for us is how do all of us escape the wrath of God that we all justly deserve for our own evil? Our passage in Genesis 6, 1 through 8 talks about a corrupt creation, a grieving God, a promised destruction, and undeserved grace. Let's read it together in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took of them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. If you thought it was weird now, it gets a little bit more strange in verse number four. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What we just read is God's word in the book of Genesis. Let's pray once more again. God, I pray you'd bless your word today. Help me, Lord, to equally and fairly declare your justice, your wrath, but also your grace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I told you that our text starts out with a corrupt creation. And verses one through five describe how on a worldwide scale, the people that God had made, the people that God had breathed life into in Genesis two, had turned their backs on God and corrupted themselves with sin. And I think the text points out three different ways that creation had corrupted themselves. The first way that it shows that creation had corrupted themselves is through unhindered lust in verses one through two. And verses one, verse one starts off pretty good, right? I mean, man began to multiply on the face of the earth. That's what God told Adam and Eve to do, to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, to uh, multiply themselves and spread out throughout the earth. And daughters were born unto them. Hey, that's great. I have three daughters. That's a, that's a good thing. But it takes a turn for the worse in verse number two. When it begins to show us that this multiplication that was happening led to and was fueled by unhindered 
lust. It talks about how the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And notice the end of verse number six. It gives us the idea of God's referendum on this. It says that they took of them wives, all which they chose. Now, I just, I'm not gonna try and spend too much time on this, but verse number two in chapter six is one of the most weirdly debated passages in all of the Bible. People are very interested, who are these sons of God? That's why there's a handout in your bulletin. I promise I won't do this every week. But Genesis 1 through 11 has some really odd stuff for the 21st century reader. There's three views that these sons of gods are fallen angels, that they're wicked rulers that are taking harems of wives to themselves, or that these are the descendants of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. For reasons that I won't go into, I believe that verse number two is talking about fallen angelic beings, demonic beings possibly, that either are taking over the bodies of people or themselves have somehow taken an earthly form and are um, having sex with people, the daughters of men. What is being shown in verse number two, whether someone takes any of those three uh, views that are on the handout that you get, is that verse number two is trying to describe people that are rejecting the sexual boundaries God puts on creation. It doesn't matter what view you take, whether it's just humans or angels or whatnot. But the idea here is that all of creation has been given a sexual ethic at the end of chapter number two, when God speaks about marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. But all of creation has said, we don't need God's boundaries on this part of our life. So here are these angelic beings who somehow are procreating with the human world. And I know that may seem strange. It seems strange when I say it. But let's not forget that as Christians, we believe in the union of a divine being with a human body. That is called the incarnation. So this doesn't seem too outside the scope of what a Christian could believe is realistic or possible but regardless, what Moses is trying to say is that this earth that was condemned by God's worldwide wrath through a worldwide flood was characterized by unhindered lust. I don't think I have to spend much time on this for you and I to recognize that though God deals with it in this passage, the world has not seemed to leave this idea of unhindered lust behind. Now, I know it's easy for us to look at our own day and criticize the sins and the indulgences of our day and the way that people in our culture and our day have rejected God's word, but it's been true throughout all of history that mankind at their core want to say no to the sexual and marital boundaries that God has given to his creation. By the way, he's given us those for our benefit. It's not just some old-fashioned ethic. And we see that multiplying in multiple ways throughout history, but it shows up in our day too, where people want to redefine marriage, where people want to redefine gender. This is a crossing of boundaries that is not unlike the crossing of boundaries that preceded the worldwide flood. It's not unlike the crossing of boundaries that preceded another judgment of fire in Genesis 15. There's a second 
characteristic of this corrupt creation. It's an unquenchable ego. Verse number four, equally as strange, describes these giants who are in the earth. And I didn't make a handout for that one. But nonetheless, there are these men. And verse number four characterizes these people in two different ways that gives us the idea that these aren't just people who have a tall stature. It's not like, oh, cool, look at the giants. Moses is pointing out these men who had unquenchable egos and were bloodthirsty killers. Look at, uh, in verse number four, it says that, um, verse number four, it says that they were mighty men of old. Now that term mighty men may sound really cool and impressive, but that term mighty men shows up later in Genesis 10 when talking about a guy that does not have a high ranking in God's sight, a guy named Nimrod. Well, we've kind of hijacked that name as a bad term in our day, haven't we? These men, these mighty men, they weren't just big and strong. In verse number 11, we see that they were filling the earth with violence. These guys were people that were trying to kill and suppress the weak so that they themselves could have God-like status. And then it says in verse number four that they were men of renown. Literally, the way that that reads in the Hebrew is they were men of a great name. Now think with me about this a little bit those who've been in church a while, where can we think of in Genesis that it talks about people wanting to make a great name for themselves? The Tower of Babel. And we know what happened there. Another worldwide judgment. And so Moses is trying to convey to us that the ego that was displayed at the Tower of Babel was already showing up in God's created beings here in verse number four with these giants, these Nephilim, whatever you want to call them, who were bloodthirsty killers, and they're trying to set themselves up as demagogues who could rule the earth by their own might. They had unquenchable egos. And then the third symptom is in verse number five, unending evil. And verse number five is a pretty solemn description of the earth. Look at it again. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his, of his heart was only evil continually. Now, what's interesting to me about this is it says that God saw. We're familiar with that phrase. Chapter one and two, God saw is always followed by, and it was good. God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. God saw all the things that he had made and behold, it was very good. But in a, quite a contrast, in verse number five, God sees his creation and it's not good. Not because he's messed up in creating them, but because they themselves have chosen to corrupt their own lives with sin and wickedness that originates in the heart. This is a statement that the morality of the people of the earth has gone off the rails. It's a spiral that may never be stopped. And so the question in the text is this, how does God respond to a corrupt creation. Well, we see two responses. We see grief and judgment. 
Verse number six describes the grief of God in a very human-like way. It uses some wording that makes us wonder what on earth it's saying about God. It, it almost makes it sound like God changed his mind. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Verse seven says, it repenteth me that I have made them. Now understand this, when the Bible uses terms to describe God, sometimes what we have to do in describing God, like I did in the beginning of the sermon, is we have to use human terms that the kind of apply to God, but we recognize that as a non-human, he's very different than us. God is unchanging. In fact, the Bible uses the same word repent to say that the Lord does not repent. He doesn't change. So why is Moses describing him in this way? Moses is trying to show us that the sin of the earth didn't just make God mad, it grieved him. The same way that you maybe who have had grown sons and daughters, who've gone off the rails and made choices that they could never take back. And as a parent, you feel grief and you feel sorrow and you wish in some ways you could change the situation. That's how God is being described here. He's grieving over the sin of his creation. See, God is not pictured as making a mistake. Listen to this. Moses is showing that God is facing the level of grief you and I face when we make a mistake. It grieved him to his heart. Don't you think as Moses is writing this to a people, the people who call themselves the people of God, that he's showing us that God desires for his people to respond to a corrupt earth, not by indulging in its corruption, but by grieving it. What we're supposed to see in this passage is that as God grieves for the sins of the earth, our response as people of God should be to grieve sin ourselves. No doubt the people who read this for the first time, they were living, they were coming out of a corrupt Egypt and they were moving into a corrupt Canaan and there was paganism and there was unhindered lust and unquenchable egos and all of that stuff was going on in the lands that they came from and the lands that they were going to. And I think Moses is trying to say that as the people of God, we should stand out from among that and we should not have a superior um, thinking about ourselves, but we should grieve when sin is going on in God's created earth. Jesus said this in regards to grieving sin. He said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We should grieve sin, not indulge in it. But I think if we were honest with ourselves, none of us are really above the corruption described in this passage. None of us are exempt from the sinful imaginations of the heart. If you read the Bible, it's pretty honest that the people of God have their own moral failings too. And that's not how it's supposed to be. God calls them from that, but because we live in a sin-cursed earth, 
We fall into sin and God himself will judge the sin of his own people as well. In fact, the story of Noah is going to end in chapter number nine with its own picture of sexual deviancy. In fact, if we just look at the world around us, unfortunately, and this is to the shame of all those who name the name of Christ, the corruption among those who name themselves as Christians is not that much better than the corruption of those who don't. I'm not gonna go through all the statistics, but I looked up statistics on different forms of sexual deviancy for Christians and non-Christians. It's not a lot different. The statistics on pornography use are not much better for those who call themselves Christians than non-Christians. We know plenty of people, and maybe we ourselves have been that people, who've been more about our name and our renown than the glory and the name of God. We live life thinking of ourselves as the hero of the story and that life revolves around our story and we often forget that it's actually not about you or about me, it's about God. And what's interesting is that even a guy who we would consider to be one of the you know, more holy dudes in the Bible, the apostle Paul, describes his own heart with language that is really similar to verse number five. Look at verse... Um, Trying to find the reference here. Romans 7:18 is on the screen. This is how Paul describes himself a Christian. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He says, For the will is present with me. He says, I want to do the right thing, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. You know what Paul's saying in Romans 7? He's saying that much like the people in Genesis 6, 5, that the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. He says, I want to do that which is good, but in the core of who I am, I'm predisposed to sin. And so because of our inherited sin nature, I think all of us, even as Christians, should agree that all of creation, because of their sin, is corrupt in the eyes of God. Do you agree with that? I know it's hard, but it's the truth. So what happens? How does God respond to those who corrupt themselves with sin? Well, verse number seven says that a corrupt creation deserves God's destruction. And our text points out two different ways God judges the sins of this era of the world. Verse number three is the first one. It says, And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. What is God doing there? God is accelerating death. We, we talked about last week, right? The, the guys who are said to live over 900 years and yet God here is shortening the life expectancy of his creation in response to their sin. Because I mean, think about it. He's, as, as a just God who's dealing with evil justly, he's reasoning that if I give people 900 years of life to 
just corrupt themselves, there's going to be nine times the amount of evil than they can accomplish in 100 years or 120 years. And so God throttles down life expectancy. And that's what's interesting about the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch as a whole is what we read in chapter number five last week was so extraordinary. Like, what, what's up with these long lifespans? And that, we could go into that a whole nother day. But then we see at the very end of the books of Moses, the death of two people who die roughly at 120 years. Aaron dies, Moses' right-hand man at age 123. And the very end of Deuteronomy, this like, trilogy or four books that Moses wrote records the death of Moses at age 120. So God judges mankind by throttling down their life expectancy and and recognize this church family that that though we sometimes were so focused on God's judgment and his wrath in this, this is a form of God's grace too. Because it's certainly not good of God to allow evil people to live for 900 years or 600 years Lord knows what would happen if the most evil people on earth lived to be that long. And so God in his grace is also doing this. But then verse number seven describes that there's gonna be a worldwide destruction. In fact, I wrote in the margin of my Bible next to verse number seven, decreation or reverse creation. Because verse number seven is actually written in reverse order in the way that God created the earth. And so God is going to reverse create or decreate and destroy the world in reverse order from the things that he made. Instead of birds and creeping things and beasts and then man, it says man, beast, creeping thing, and birds. And here's what's ironic about the passage. In verses three or verses two through seven, mankind thinks that they can make themselves like gods. You have humans and and angelic, somewhat divine beings trying to procreate. You have giants in the earth who think they are gods themselves and are oppressing weaker people. And yet all of those people, the people who thought they could get away with it, are now going to face the same fate as any average human. The sons of God, the mighty men of renown, will all be leveled in a worldwide destruction. And what's interesting is that this sounds a whole lot like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? What was the temptation that the serpent uttered in the ear of Eve? That when she took of that fruit, he said, you will be as what? Gods. What's interesting in verse, I think verse number Two, that it uses the same language as Eve's sin. Eve saw, Eve took, and Eve ate. And here we see that the sons of God saw and they were attracted and they took of them wives, all of which they chose. Here's what Genesis 6 is restating to us. That mankind doesn't get away with their sin. That those who choose to reject God's authority deserve God's judgment. And I, I recognize that this, this idea is rejected as foolish and silly in our world today. 
Like most people don't even believe there was a worldwide flood. That, we'll talk about that in, in two, three weeks from now. But they don't even believe that there's any sort of eternal judgment from God. But if you're out there, maybe you yourself doubt that. Can I just encourage you to listen to one question I have for you? If you find yourself struggling to believe that God would judge the earth, ask yourself this question. Who do you know that is exempt from the judgment of God in verse number three, where he limits life expectancy? What human do you know that has escaped that judgment? Then why is it as people, we will recognize the reality of God's judgment in verse number three, None of us can live much past 120. But then we'll think somehow by verse number seven, God's just lying to us. Friend, the reality is, is that nobody can escape the limited life expectancy God put on creation and nobody can escape a final judgment that God will have on a corrupt creation that has chosen sin over righteousness. And Jesus actually says this exact same thing. In Matthew 24, Jesus compares the destruction on the people in Noah's day with the coming judgment that he himself shall bring. And he describes it in interesting terms that he says that people were just carrying on as normal and suddenly faced judgment. Look at verse 37 in Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Doesn't that sound like verse number two? Until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that there came a time where God had a breaking point and he judged the sins of the earth. He judged everybody who chose sin over his boundaries. And Jesus says the day will come when he will come back and he himself will judge all of the earth for their sins. And that day will be as unexpected as the flood of Noah and it will be as severe as the flood of Noah. That the reality is, friend, that Jesus' coming and his resurrection the first time proves to us that he may come again and he will judge this earth the same way that he showed grace in the first coming is the way he'll show judgment in the second coming. And I think all of us have to recognize that we are living in the days of Noah. We are living in days that await the coming of a judgment from God, but this time it will be by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And friend, the day will come when that judgment happens and it'll be too late to change your stance toward God. It'll be too late for you to deal with the corruption in your heart because God is giving us space right now the same way he was giving them space then to repent and to believe in Christ and submit to his authority because those who have not submitted themselves to Christ in this life will be judged in the next. Are we in agreement on that, church family? Don't leave me hanging up here. I know that many of you believe that Jesus will judge and he is a righteous and a just judge and that day is coming. 
And if we have not chosen to submit to Christ, that day is not a good one. It is a fearful, fearful judgment. Because the reality is, is that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I told you there's three questions that are answered in this passage. Number one, when does God reach his breaking point? Number two, what does God do when he reaches his breaking point? Well, he brings worldwide destruction. He brings judgment. But the third question I said our passage answers is how do we escape it? Because we all recognize the reality earlier that all of us have sinned. All of us are corrupt. Even the Apostle Paul, using very similar language, describes his own heart that seeks after sin rather than righteousness. How do we escape? Because we all deserve the judgment of God, but I hope some of us believe we won't face it. Well, verse number eight gives us a clue. I like the first word. It contrasts. It says, but Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. How do we escape God's judgment? You and I can escape God's judgment through God's undeserved grace. I like the words, he found grace. Though verse number nine through 11 describes Noah's righteousness, Noah didn't earn this grace, he received this grace. It was the grace that he received that allowed him to live the righteous life that he did. It was undeserved grace. He received it, but he responded the right way. How do we know that Noah responded in a different way than other people? It says in Verse number nine, that Noah, like Enoch, like we talked about last week, he walked with God. And as we talked about last week, walking with God is the portal to eternal life. So here's Noah, and he finds grace in the eyes of God. The idea there, that, that phrase is used when someone um, in an undeserving way is spared by a dignitary. They found grace. They don't really have anything to give this guy, but they're asking this king to spare them in war. Or when they've done something against the king in this kingdom, they find grace. And the same way is true that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Our passage today really is a partner with Genesis 5 because all of Genesis 5 and Genesis 6 talks about death coming as a result of sin. And all of us have sinned and therefore all of us deserve to die. But while our passage points out that God's judgment is real, it is promised, it is certain, it shows us that God has chosen to show his grace to those who would receive his son Christ rather than reject him that the only way to be spared during the coming of the Son of Man is to submit yourself to the Lordship of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And I have good news for us this morning, that God still shows undeserved grace. He still has people who find grace in his sight rather than being seen as wicked in his sight. Maybe you could... Christian, put your name there. 
Mike found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Rick found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Colleen found grace in the eyes of the Lord. None of us deserve this grace because we've all sinned. But God has promised that in response to receiving his son Jesus and trusting his sacrifice and receiving him as your Lord, you too can find grace in the eyes of the Lord and be spared like Noah was spared. You won't earn it. You won't deserve it. But you, you will receive it if you respond rightly to God. If rather than saying, I don't need God, I don't need his boundaries, I don't need his law, you instead submit to him through his son Christ, God will show grace on you too. And when that day comes, the coming of the Son of Man, just like this moment here in history, it will be a day of judgment. But for those who have received Christ as Savior, it will not be a day of judgment and fearfulness upon them. It will be a day of glory and grace because they chose to accept the grace God had shown them. I don't know who's here and where you stand with God. I don't have some sort of spiritual x-ray vision. But I know this. You know whether you have received God's grace through Jesus or not. You know whether you are responding to God as someone who's received his grace or whether you are not. And I would plead on my hands and my knees if I could to see everyone in this room spared from the judgment we all deserve. I would do anything. But all I can do is preach the Bible and tell you that you should do it. You should receive Christ and experience his grace. There's a hymn that I think all of us love that talks about God's grace and happens to use flood wording to talk about the consequences of sin. I'm sure you know it. One of the verses goes like this, sin and despair like sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace that is greater than all our sin. There's no one in here who's so bad you cannot be rescued by God's grace. It's powerful enough to cleanse all of us from sin. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want us to respond to God's word today. And I think there's a couple ways you and I can respond. I think if you're a Christian and you're like me and you're, you're weak and you're 
Sometimes you better reflect your sinful nature than your new nature in Jesus Christ. How this passage challenges me is not to corrupt myself by following the pattern of this world, but to grieve sin in my own heart and to grieve sin that is around me. To choose rather to than to be proud and think you're better than those who've in some way crossed God's boundaries, to just grieve and pray for them. That's a whole lot better of an attitude, I think. But really, I hope every Christian here would look in their own heart and recognize that sometimes we we don't seem a whole lot like Noah. And that you would repent of your sins and the ways in which this week that you've chosen sin rather than God's authority. But maybe there's some that you need the grace of Christ. You need to receive his grace because maybe in some way the Lord has pointed you to the fact that his judgment is sure. As sure as life, ex- life expectancy is limited, God's future judgment is sure. And I would invite you even in this time to pray and respond to Jesus and to receive him into your life. But maybe you wouldn't be ready for that and that's fine, but you would be willing to ask some questions. I'd be more than happy to talk with anybody who needs or is interested in Christ. But let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that even though sometimes it's, it's serious and it's difficult for us to listen to, Lord, it, it's very strong. God, in your kindness, you warn us about our sin. Lord, it would be an, a cruel God that would let us continue on in a life that will soon meet destruction and never warn us. But I pray that in some way your people have recognized your kindness and wanting to speak to them about their sin. But I pray that there would not be a single person here who would reject Christ and meet the day of judgment unprepared. Lord, help us if we've found grace to just praise you and thank you. Because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it at all. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace that is given to us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.